Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. a minute about building your board and it's you know it's an interesting question to think about using how you use a capital campaign to build your board i mean the first question that comes to my mind on this on it is this do you need a power board a fundraising board in order to have a capital campaign and we often get that question do you need a board where the top gifts for your campaign will actually be from people on your board and of course it's it's ideal right it would isn't that wonderful when that happens but our experience is that most in most campaigns for most organizations, they have not built boards primarily because of the huge financial capacity of their board members. They've built boards because they want to have a board that that represents to some extent all the people they serve, that represents a variety in their community and from their community, and that has people from of, of all, you know, of representing all kinds of all kinds of areas. So today, particularly for community found for community organizations or for social service organizations, it's fairly rare to have a board from which you will get your top gifts. And you know what? That's okay because we structure campaigns to accommodate that, right? With some frequency, your board is, most of the time, your board is not the organization that actually works on and is responsible for the campaign. You use the process of building a campaign to pull together some board members, but also people who wouldn't serve on your board, who don't serve on your board, but who can help you reach into the community from a financial point of view that your board can't reach into. And it's one of the powers of capital campaigns that you can build through through campaign structures, that you can build relationships with people who have the kind of capacity and power and clout that you want for the campaign even though they probably wouldn't be likely board members, either from your perspective or from theirs. Right, Amy? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that one, honestly, one of the most remarkable things that I've learned about campaigns over the years is how the committee structure and having ad hoc committees and fluid committees, you know, uh, committee committee members that serve for a period of time and then step back a little bit uh, has been really uh, an, an opportunity to engage people from the community and non-board members in your campaign in a way that you would never do if you just had to rely on your existing board. So really leveraging those committees and that opportunity is critical for your success. Now, I want to share with you a really, a really good idea about about building your board. And this was an idea that someone shared with me, excuse me, a a bunch of years ago, must be 10 or 15 years ago. And the story was this, I was doing a feasibility study, this is when I was doing traditional feasibility studies with an organization here in New York. And one of the people I went to interview was a very, very wealthy guy. And um, he knew his power, but he was very, interesting. He was interested in nonprofits and how they worked. And he was not on the board of this organization, but he had a long relationship with it. So I go into his office. He had this, I remember he had this big, wonderful 
wooden desk in this lovely place with beautiful windows. And before we got to talking about nonprofits in general, and before the end of the meeting, he said, you know, he said, I think every nonprofit is totally crazy if they don't designate 15 minutes at every board meeting to invite someone in to talk to their board. They should invite in the most powerful people in their community. They should invite in people who can talk about their mission, experts. They should invite in people from the, from the philanthropists from their community. That if they do that 15 minutes a board meeting, what they're going to do in that process is to let is to have those people get to learn about their organization, to build a relationship with those people that can then go forward, right? Not necessarily build them as board members, but just have it as a standing practice. He said, the other thing that happens when you do that is that your board meetings become more interesting. I thought, you know what? What a great idea that is. It just would take a little doing in board governance and somebody to say, okay, who's going to be on the committee who invites people to be presenters at our organization? 15 minutes, tell it, find out what we're doing, tell us about what you're doing, give us some lessons, tell us about things in the community you think we should know. Right? Imagine if you did that every time. That's a great, isn't it a great idea? That is a great idea. And I think that in this age of virtual meetings, it's even easier because you can think outside your community. Uh, you can you can use anybody and people are available and they just need to zoom in for 15 minutes. Let me backtrack a little bit off the outside of your community. Um, use people that are in your community, whatever that means. If you're a national organization or across geographies, it certainly makes it easier. But you want people that are philanthropists in your community or in your sphere. So people that have the potential to be interested and engaged in your mission. So all right, for whatever that's worth. Um, That's the power of ideas. You know, Amy, I can't remember the name of that guy. Right. But I can remember his idea. Right. It's such a good idea. It is such a good idea. Um, Excellent. All right. So one more thing to say and then let's pivot to questions. But the last thing that strikes me about this is that if you use your campaign committees to bring in people who are not on your board, Right. And to build relationships with them through your campaign, it may be that those people eventually would want to serve on your board and that you would want to have them on your board. So it's not a good idea to scramble around like mad to build a a power board before your campaign. But you should really be working to use your campaign to build relationships with people that might then strengthen your strengthen your board after the campaign. And then I think is counterintuitive to a lot of people. So we're thinking about. Yeah, it's I think you're right, Andrea. It's exactly opposite of what most people think. They think they have to build their board prior to a campaign. And certainly, wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, somebody came to me the other day and she said, you know, I want to raise a million dollars for my endowment or whatever, you know, some it was a big number for that organization. And we we talked a little bit. And, you know, she she had been at the organization a long time, 15 years or more as the executive director. And I said, well, you know, why haven't you built the endowment over time? And she said, you know, for this reason, I couldn't. And for that reason, I can. So, you know, it's not like magic, a campaign, all of a sudden, she's going to be able to raise a million dollars for her endowment. Um, And so, you know, her, her thinking was a little bit backwards. And I think that that's the same idea. You know, you may have wanted to build a power board for the last 10 years. It doesn't just happen because you want to have a campaign. But using the campaign process and campaign strategy and, um, you know, awareness building and consensus building and recruiting people to participate, you know, your board will come out stronger because of the campaign. But it's not like, you know, the day you decide to have a campaign, you can all of a sudden build your board into a power board. You have, you know, if you've been trying to build up your board for the last 10 years, but a campaign is a tool and gives you an infrastructure and an opportunity to think about building your board over time in the future. So I I love that. 
Amy, I want to answer Jennifer's question because I suspect it's a question a lot of people have, which is if you invite some a presenter in, what are the questions or topics you would ask that presenter to talk about? And here's a simple answer for that. You want to invite people in to talk about something they are experts at, right? You want them, you want to pick people because they have something interesting, an interesting perspective or something interesting to say, or so, and if you, if you, for example, have a monthly board meeting, right? It's one thing to say, Amy, would you come and talk to our April board meeting? It's another thing to say, Amy, every year we pick 12 leaders in our community and we invite those leaders in to talk to our board, to talk to our board for 15 minutes, right? About their role in the community, about, you know, things that they are expert at. Would you, would you be willing to be, you know, your name is on that list. Would you be willing to be one of those experts? So if I create a context for asking her and that makes her feel great, she's going to say yes, right? If I just say, well, we were trying to fill 10 minutes of board time, <laughs> she's going to say oh. no. And I think to the point about asking them what to talk about, right? So, I mean, there are going to be some natural things, you know, if you're picking somebody because of their marketing expertise or because of their, you know, whatever their qualifications and their maybe, you know, because of their professional expertise, but also, you know, you may think of what's an, what's somebody who's somebody who's led a capital campaign at another organization, would they come share lessons learned from their board, you know, as a board chair or a campaign chair from another organization? Um, you're not trying to poach them, but you're trying to learn from them. And so, you know, would they come share those things? So, you know, they don't have to teach you things that you already know. You want them teaching you things that they, that come very naturally to them. If you have some, um, an attorney, an estate planning attorney in the community, you know, come teach us about how we might think about including, you know, encouraging donors to leave us in their wills those types of things. So, you know, one thing once, you know, to zoom in for 15 minutes is fine. If you're actually inviting somebody in person, you know, stopping by for 15 minutes might be really, you know, good for them. And they might want to get more out of it. So you may say, you know, we offer people the opportunity to come at the beginning for snacks or to, you know, present at the very end and then people will stay and want to talk to you. So, you know, would 7 p.m. or would 9 p.m. work better for you? You know, so um, you want to build in networking. They might want to network with people on your board. Your board might want to network with them as well. So, And, you know, it doesn't even have to be just be community leaders. You might invite an alumni from the organization to come to come and talk. Right. And find out what's happened to their lives and find. I mean, it, you don't have to limit it to, you know, to to community leaders. I, I suspect once you get a conversation going about who those people should be, you'll be surprised at, at how rich the territory is and how over time the, possibility. it really, the possibilities become huge. OK. Endless. Endless. All right. Let's turn to the questions now. Yeah. Uh, we've got some. Somebody. All right, here, Lauren. Lauren, thank you for your first question. The first question that came in, Lauren, and we're gonna we're gonna answer it. In this time of COVID, with no public gatherings, we're trying to be as creative as possible with the public phase of the campaign. What do you think of billboards and a postcard to every household in our service area? So I want all of you to chat in if you have interesting ideas about how you go public in this time of COVID. What are the ways in which you can get the word out that are that are creative and 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 helpful? Um, so I think you know really what you're after in the public phase of it. The only reason, let me put it this way: the only reason, in my opinion, my, hum, my humble opinion, to to have a public phase of a campaign is because you are building awareness so that you can increase the number of people who know about you and who give to you going forward. More and more, we raise 
the great bulk of the money before we ever get to the public phase. And, you know, I mean, more and more, I encourage people not to go public until they've raised 90 or even 95% of the money, right? If you raise more than that from the public phase, that's great. But what you really are focusing on, and Lauren, you're pointing to this, is, is an increased awareness in in your organization and the good that it does. And certainly things like billboards and, and postcards, but be sure you don't waste your money, right? If you're going to do billboards and postcards, do them in a way that people are going to see them and notice them. This is a time actually to spend money on creative talent as you plan the public phase of your campaign. Don't do a lousy looking billboard that's on the outskirts of town that nobody's ever going to notice. That's a waste. Figure out a billboard that's going to pow, right? That's going to get people, get people's attention. Be, be creative about, about what it is you do for the public phase of the campaign in a way that is going to get people to call you or to you know, do something that's going to going to be a sweetener for their actually getting in touch with you or getting involved. So having people eyeballs on your billboard is one thing. Having eyeballs on your billboard that triggers them to actually do something is something quite different. And I would work to get that. Um, yeah. So same with postcards. Yeah, there's lots of good suggestions in the in the chat that I just want to acknowledge. And so uh, Susie's recommending a digital campaign, peer-to-peer campaigns during COVID, of course. Uh, you know, um, online fundraising went through the roof. It grew faster in 2020 than any other year prior, as we should not be surprised about. So a public aspect of your campaign, of course, would include some digital fundraising. Um, you know, Gary's saying, I'd look at the public phase as building for the future. Uh, for future campaigns, right? Um, for Gary, you said that so succinctly. I right, like that. that's right. So, Lauren, you know, when you're asking about billboards and postcards, I would ask, you know, what's the goal? What are you trying to achieve? Um, if it's lots of dollars raised, it's probably not the best strategy, right? So we look at those, those are sort of marketing, casting a wide net, and you'll catch a few fish, um, but that's not a time for big fundraising, which I'm guessing you know, uh, but just want to make sure that that it was said. You know, several people have talked about virtual galas. Um, David's mentioning that. Um, making sure that you have a call to action, Jamie's saying. Yeah. So, okay. So Brian has asked this question, how do you get the board board members to identify relationships with foundations and corporations and use them to open doors? All right, Brian. So there are a variety of aspects to this question. First of all, in order to do that, you have to, of course, have a board that has those relationships. And some of your board members may have those relationships, but some of them may not. And you have to be careful that you don't make board members feel bad because you're asking them to do things that is not within their capacity to do. And I think we often do that with boards, right? We don't do a good job of differentiating when we're talking about a board as a whole and when we need to look at who the individuals on your board are who could help in this way. So, I mean, the most simple and straightforward thing to do is to is to ask board members to self-identify if they think they have relationships with area foundations or corporations and meet with them separately. Right. To say, OK, let's make a list. And actually, I would probably bring in a list to that meeting. People do better if you start with a list, not just a blank sheet of paper. Say, here are the here are the foundations and corporations on our list that we're trying to find out information, see who has connections. Let's go over this one by one at this meeting of people who have self-identified. And see, you know, it may be that you have two or three people who know one foundation or who know one corporation. And then you can say, well, what what are the next best steps with that? So to summarize, be sure that you're not asking board members into, to do things that they are not qualified or able to do. That's always a bad, always a mistake because it makes them feel bad. And that you pull the people who can help with that and you pull them together. 
there is something about coming together with others and that you work from a list. And then that will, that will, what's the word that will fuel them to think about other people they, they may know. Right. And then brainstorm. Yes. Let let me add to that, Brian. So uh, for what Andrea said, um, yes, don't make the assumption that your board members know corporations and foundations. I think, you know, it is frustrating for nonprofit staff when we make assumptions like that. Do some research in advance. You can use LinkedIn these days and Facebook to find out who your board members are connected to. So you may want to go to someone and say, hey, I see you're a first connection with so-and-so at such-and-such foundation. I mean, you can certainly ask them, but I do want to remind you and everybody else on the call, the Giving USA statistics every year that come out show us that corporations and foundations give about 20% of the philanthropic dollars in this country combined, 20% combined. Individuals give close to 80% of the philanthropic dollars. you know, we can break those statistics down even more if you want, but really the the point I'm trying to make is that when you're asking the question, how do we get board members to identify relationships with foundations? I wanna flip the question and ask, how do we get board members to identify people who might be interested in supporting our cause or learning more about our cause? So why restrict yourself to corporations and foundations? You can ask that question, You might get one or two who have relationships um, or who work at companies or foundations that do provide philanthropic support, but the vast majority of your board members are more likely to have personal networks of individuals who might be interested in supporting your cause. So let's make sure to go in that direction as well. Yeah, I I mean, I totally agree with what you've said, Amy. And it is also true that in most communities, in many communities, there are a couple of significant foundations that give to many of the capital campaigns in those communities. And you, of course, need to be checking and seeing who on your board has relationships with those if you don't already have a significant relationship with those people. So this is a, a yes, of course, you should be working on building relationships with individuals and, and, and foundations and occasional corporations. Right. That's really that's really the case. Now, our anonymous attendee, Amy, has raised this question that you and I have really wrestled with and we have not come up with a good answer for. And I wish we could. We we keep wrestling with it, though. So I do want to look at this question because I think it's important for all of us to think about it. The question is this. How do you think about equity and white supremacy culture in your work in capital campaigns? How do you consider best or better practices regarding the structure of our industry in regards to capital campaigns and capacity donors? You know, this is, and it troubles me to, this topic is complicated and I, we do keep thinking about it and working on it because in some way capital campaigns are among the most capitalistic of fundraising endeavors. They rely on a very few, very big gifts, which are often gifts from from white people, right? Sometimes from white people whose values you may or may not believe in or agree with. And the question is, what can you do? What should you do to to stop sintering whiteness in in this this business that by its nature, by the top heavy nature of this particular kind of fundraising, it raises, you know, fundamental questions. We are in the most capitalistic kind of fundraising. And do I, do I have good answers? If anyone has good answers to this, I would love to know them. I mean, I keep, I keep thinking about, and we keep working on, on, on including many more people on committees, on using capital campaigns to teach people of all kinds about fundraising, on giving people skills so that whether you're, whatever your color is, wherever you come from in the society, you know how to ask people who have money for money, 
right? I mean, I keep thinking about it from that point of view, because it turns out to be very difficult to identify people in many communities who are people of color who have the kind of resources that we need for capital campaign fundraising. So we think about it from the other way around, that, that, that really we can help people get access to dollars by including them in our campaign structures, by teaching them, by by helping them understand that anybody can go and ask, ask someone for money. You don't need to be rich and wealthy and white in order to ask somebody for, somebody for a gift, but you do need to understand how to do it, how to do it well, how to, how to do it effectively. So at the Capital Campaign Toolkit, we, we work to encourage our clients to do more of that, to think consciously and constructively about it. Now, yeah. I, you're an anonymous attendee, so I don't know who you are, but I would very much appreciate your, your thoughts about how, to, about how to do this. We, are, we continue to be active in our, in our own minds about, about being more conscious of, of equity and inclusion um, in this most capitalistic of fundraising, and we are aware of the challenges of it. In the chats, uh, and remember, everybody who's typing into the chat, if you're if you're participating live, make sure that you write to panelists and attendees so everybody can see the conversation. But David's saying, um, include diversity and inclusivity in your messaging, of course. Uh, and Jamie is adding the gift. And the donor needs to align with the organization's goals yeah. and principles. And, you know, for sure. Um, and Karen is recommending Decolonizing Wealth as an excellent read. So yes. we have to check that out. Have you read yeah, it? I actually have. And uh, I, I have. I, I, think it's, I think it's really quite interesting. The, a lot of what's been written is written largely about foundations, which is interesting. About, you know, that, which is a slightly different, different, you know, it's just one corner of the world in which we, in which we operate. But I think the more we read about this, the more we are aware of it, the more we can find ways. Ways, ways to to bring inclusivity to to even this kind of fundraising. All right. So Victoria is asking about how to use campaigns to fundraise. Um, you know, she's fundraising for youth reader stipends. Um, so I think that leads to the question about how to fundraise for any specific thing. Um, what is your case for support? What are your campaign objectives? Uh, that's how I'm reading the question. Um, and so, you know, I think the bottom line is to start finding people who care about the thing that you're fundraising for. And so whether it's starting with your volunteers and board members or staff members or clients, but, um, you know, really we, we use this graphic image of concentric circles, right? When talking about an organization. And so the smallest circle in the middle is your organization. And that is probably your board members, your staff members, your clients, the next circle out would be your donors and, and volunteers. And, and out we go into the community, the people that are closest to the center of those circles are going to be the most interested in your cause. And that's for capital campaign fundraising and all types of fundraising. Um, but, you know, of course, at the Capital Campaign Toolkit, we like to think that a campaign mindset, as we touched on a little bit in, in a few weeks ago's blog post, but, you know, thinking about capital campaign strategy really is the most effective way to raise money for any cause really thinking about what do you need to raise money for? What are your campaign objectives? How much will that cost? And, and then really making a solid case for support. Why should donors care? Why should they give to you? Why should they give to your organization now? What's the urgency? What will you do? What's the impact? So what would you add, Andrea? I think that's right. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Let's, there's so much chat going on. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, then you might want to think about joining us on Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern time for the live taping so you can participate in the chat. Uh, the conversation is going by faster than I can read it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, <laughs> 
And if you're here live and you missed a Monday, you can always join us on the podcast called All About Capital Campaigns. So if you ever miss a Monday, you can join us um, a few days afterwards um, on your favorite podcasting app. Okay, what's the next question here? Uh, well, I just want to pick up a couple of things from the chat, Amy's, just so that our, the people who listen on podcasts sort of know what that chat is about, because this issue of inclusivity is so is so so important. I think the um, so somebody has said add inclusivity and diversity diversity to all messaging, and um, somebody has has suggested that you uh, that you make sure that you you are recruiting widely as you as you pull people into into campaign committees. Uh, that um, let's see what's another yeah, one Sharon, Sharon's writing it is important never to assume that you know anyone's ability to give based on culture address this will help with inclusivity not making assumptions about people so thank you Sharon for that comment yeah so it's such a great topic to keep to keep going I, I thank you for raising it and uh, and I, I think I think we need to keep talking about it so we have re- an interesting situation here. Uh, pause. Oh, I'm sorry, Amy. You read that anonymous thing. My doorbell is ringing, and I can't get it. Oops. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, next question. My organization has a very small and aging board. They want to sunset the organization after the capital campaign, but I would rather they think of succession and use the campaign as an opportunity to get to know supporters and build a new board to keep the organization going. Does this make sense? So I can't. Oh, okay, Andrea, you're still muted. So go ahead. You just mouth no. <laughs> what were you about to say? No. It does, okay, why are you still muted? Hold on, let me let me try and figure um, out how. I got to, it. There you are. There okay. you are. Sorry. So here's why it doesn't make sense. First of all, it's troubling to imagine an organization saying, "Well, we're gonna." Oh. Okay. Go, okay. Go get it. Um. Uh, yeah, so I don't know what Andrea was going to say, but I don't understand an organization that's doing a campaign and then going into a sunset um, to meet or to close down. So I don't understand why anybody would give to you if you're sunsetting. So um, Sharon's saying don't sunset repurpose. Um, Diana's saying they should do an open call for nominations, right? Um, so, you know, maybe we need more information about this. I can't imagine, like I said, Andrea's back. I can't imagine any organization doing a campaign or any donors giving to you. You have to be honest with them if you're about to, to phase out. It makes no sense. I, what were you going to say, Andrea? That's that. Exactly. It makes yeah. no sense. It makes no sense. I mean, if the organization, the board is getting old and they're tired, that's fine. If they want a sunset sunset but don't raise a bunch of money first and then I yeah, mean, I'm sure he's not talking about taking the money and running but but still it it is that's not not the right approach so someone needs to tell your organization that they either need to make a decision that they're going to keep going and bring on a younger younger board right and then they can raise the money or they need to to fade into the woodwork. And I'm all for that, actually. I think many organizations, it's actually an interesting subject of of sunsetting an organization. And I think we need to do much more of that, honestly. I think organizations, many organizations have a, a natural ebb and flow, right? An organization starts with a lot of energy. Often you have a founder or founders, they build something and they get to a point where either they're getting old or they lose their energy and they haven't bothered to do the things they need to do to build a robust board and get beyond the founder. There's absolutely nothing wrong with an organization like that deciding that it's done, that it's over, right? So I, I just want to, want to raise that as a possibility, as a reasonable possibility. Yeah. So, you know, uh, somebody in the chat and I can't find it now. Oh, it's Mary is asking, is the mission still relevant? Right. And if it is, then you can keep going. But if it's, uh, you know, it's it's always interesting to think about the mission or the goal of your organization. You should be working to put yourself out of a job. You should be working to sunset. Um, And I can only think of one 
or maybe two organizations that I'm aware of that have actually accomplished their mission and be able to either shut down or pivot completely. Um, but, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if you solved world hunger or fully cleaned the environment? I mean, we, we all want a sunset out once we accomplish the mission. If the mission is still relevant, then you should keep going and recruit new board well, members. Maybe. Maybe, Maybe you should keep All right. You know, organizations have this difficult time in getting past their founders. Mm. I'm a real believer in founders organizations. I think they have a wonderful energy. There's nothing like a founder when they're fired up to get things done, to make things happen. It's quite magical. Relatively few founders are able to get beyond that. They're able to let go of an organization in a way that it can continue after they're gone. And if that if it can't, that's fine, right? <laughs> Say, yeah. boy, isn't this an amazing run? Haven't we accomplished amazing things? Kudos to the founder. Now we're going away. Goodbye. <laughs> or as Priscilla suggests, merging might be appropriate. Or merging, or, merging, or yeah. having someone else come in and think about it quite in a quite a fresh way. So I, I so many of, of the organizations, the not the amazing nonprofit organizations exist when there is an energy to make the work happen. And when that energy wanes, you either have to find a way to rekindle it, or you have to say, we, have, we haven't solved the problem forever. This is a big problem. It's not going to go away anytime soon. But what we can do has come to an end. And I, the reason I'm, <laughs> I'm sticking with this, Amy, is that I think it's a point of view you rarely hear. So... So I just want to make sure people know it's okay. Yes. Is your board brave enough to vote themselves out of existence, yes. right? Yes. Oh, I do have a little story about this. I'll yeah, well, Pam, Pam's adding, you know, term limits, right? To get term limits. And passion on the board. Exactly. Your board should never age out or, you know, right. get too old because you should be turning over your board every few years. So, yes. You know, Amy, the same guy who told me about <laughs> about um, bringing in visitors to your board also said something else to me. From And that was a that was a terrific meeting I had with him. Right. Yeah. The other thing he said is I think people are crazy if they are not organizations, you know, people who run organizations are crazy if they are not working on getting trust fund babies onto their board, right? The next generation of wealth. Yeah. He said there is a huge, there is a group of people who are young, who are in their 20s, who's, who grew up in wealth. And their families, the older generation, would like to have the younger generation learn how to become philanthropists. And a great way to do that is to get them to serve on boards. So he said, I think people are crazy not to know who those, who that next generation is. Look around your community, see where the next generation of wealth is, invite them to serve on your board. And because what's gonna happen in some cases is that their families are gonna really encourage them to do that. And their families are gonna want them to succeed right, when they get on a board. And that will have good consequences. <laughs> Good outcomes. Consequences. Good outcomes. I'm sorry. Outcomes. outcomes. No, That's consequences. Right. I think is technically correct, but it has a net negative connotation. Right. Good outcomes. So, You're yes. exactly right. Yes. yes. So anyway, that now I'm done with my stories from that guy. Yeah. So, but you know, Victoria is correctly pointing out that you have to know those people, and for small BIPOC organizations, they don't have those access or connections. And you know, it is a struggle to network outside of your immediate community. Yes. But but I, wait, but wait a minute. We can pull okay. this conversation together, right? Yes. Small BIPOC conversations can invite some of the region's philanthropists in to talk to them, and 15 minutes of a board meeting. We can pull these things together. Right. They're going to be happy to do that. They're going to be willing to build relationships. Those relationships can exist if you put time and thoughtful attention into building them. Right. And that's that's a really interesting thing to do. So, again, we can't assume who's willing to help us and who's not willing to help us. That's a I think that's yeah. a, and you know what? As 
some people who, you know, are, I, I don't think it's about gatekeeper and many, many, only very few people actually have gatekeepers, right? The vast majority of people in your community do not operate with, with gatekeepers. You don't need to only find the multi-billionaires. There are plenty of people who are vice president level and you know president level business owners in your community who would love, who don't have gatekeepers. And if you dropped them a handwritten note or picked up the phone or dropped off some home-baked cookies with a note, would happily read your note. And my guess is that, you know, honestly, it goes both ways, right? So people at BIPOC organizations don't know some of these, uh, you know, white philanthropists and white philanthropists may be looking for new opportunities and they don't know how to get involved or where to start. So it takes reaching out, I think, in both directions. Um, and it's it this this idea of a board member, uh, you know, inviting someone to talk to your board 12 times a year or eight times a year is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Or, you know, you could invite them to talk to your staff. They You could invite people to talk to your clients. It doesn't just have to be at board meetings. And so really bringing people in and engaging people. It's, you know, it's what fundraising is all about. It's what we do with a capital campaign. You know, here's another idea about gatekeepers. I think, I think we underestimate gatekeepers sometimes. Gatekeepers are important and they are powerful. And my guess is that they seldom get invited to come and talk to a board. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it be interesting to go to a gatekeeper from your community foundation? And it may be that, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking of a friend of mine. I have a friend, a friend who's very wealthy. She actually has, she hires someone to handle her philanthropy for her. Now, would her, would the person she hire, you know, she sits at her desk and she goes through the proposals and she decides who's going to give the money and she does all the correspondence. Would she feel great if someone came and said, listen, we want to understand what this world looks like from your perspective. Won't you come and talk to our board? I'll bet you anything she would be tickled to do it because the requests almost always go to her boss and not to her. Right. So I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that the gatekeeper won't be happy to come and talk to you and share what she's learned or he's learned over the years of working as a gatekeeper, what they see and what they don't see, what works and what doesn't work. Right. Why not invite the gatekeeper? Powerful people, those gatekeepers. <laughs> I love Amy's comments here in the in the chat. She says, I've had luck networking after getting into a local leadership class, uh, Leadership Austin here. Have Even having that connection of being an alumni of the same course can get you contacts and get you into the door that you might not have otherwise. So yeah, looking for those connections, um, figuring out, you know, what organizations you both belong to. A little bit of research goes a long way, I think. Um, all right. Let's read. Uh, go ahead. So let's see. Yeah, Pam Montgomery points out that you can often find the next generation of wealth already involved in family foundations. That's I think that is often true. And and it doesn't take very many answering, asking people before you find out, find out who is who is there. There was a campaign where they invited the next generation, a young woman in her 20s who of the fam of a big, you know, big wealthy family to, to serve as a co-chair of the campaign. She didn't have a clue what she was doing, but the family was interested in having her learn. And that's and said that. And we actually spent a lot of time working with her. She became a very capable chair during that campaign and the family was delighted. Um, All right. So Marriott's asking us to define gatekeepers. So, uh, you know, it's an administrative assistant um, who manages the person's mail, email, phone calls. They take their messages so they control who gets through to the person you're trying to reach. So, you know, the CEO of a big corporation would have an administrative person um, in the old days. I guess we called them a secretary uh, who would, like I said, be be 
at the gate to figuring out who, oh yes, Kit's reminding me, they manage the calendar, they figure out who's getting an appointment, who's not getting an appointment, what mail gets through, what phone messages get through. All right, good. Um, Interesting to know what it feels like to be in that position, to know what they learn about the community by watching the mail, to know what do's and don'ts they would advise, right, from that position. I I promise you, if you can get them to talk to you, you're going to get an earful. What, what ticks their employer off, right? Right. I'm sure, you know, if you're in a position where you're a philanthropist in a community, you get solicitations constantly. And some you respond positively to and some you are not interested in. And, you know, those, those gatekeepers or people who work with you closely um, may have a good sense of, you know, don't say that to my boss. They do not respond well to that. Or, you know, this is the kind of thing that they would catch their attention or that I would pass along, right? <laughs> All right. So some con cone cune, I don't know how to get your name proper, proper, proper some kind. I spoke with you some years ago, I think, and you were building a, 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 a Cambodian center somewhere in Massachusetts, if I recall correctly. And, um, and you asked the following question, which is, I'd be interested in people's thoughts about it. Uh, my board members are mostly limited English proficient and totally new to capital campaigns. Most of them don't are not wealthy themselves, but they're passionate about the tradition and the culture. How can I get them to help out with the capital campaign and overcome their barriers? So that's it's a challenging, it's a challenging situation. Passion does win the day, but you have to be able, of course, to communicate with the people who have wealth. One thing uh, that I would start start off the answer to this with is that most organizations, when they come to us to talk about their campaigns, say to us, most of our board is are not wealthy themselves. So that is not peculiar to your organization. Now, it's combined with... With the fact that some of your some of your board members' English skills may not be may, may not be so good, and clearly you have to work in terms of reaching out and making connections with with philanthropists. You have to work with people whose English skills are good enough to do that. But I would um, I, well let me, go on. ahead. All right. So my suggestion is that most second generation kids speak English much better than their parents do. And so having them author, you know, translate the emails, draft the notes, uh, you know, so there are probably people close to your board members who do have better English than your board members themselves. The next generation is going to speak much better English. And so, you know, if your board members, you know, draft emails, communicate the message, what they wish they could say, then even, you know, even even a, a 10 or a 12 year, well, a 12, 14 year old, you know, might, would be able to translate that type of note um, into an email, into a, into a note, into a note. So I, I think that that's one way around that. Uh, the English barrier. I mean, at first I was going to suggest hiring a translator, looking for a, you know, a volunteer translator, I think is probably also a reasonable suggestion. And the other thing I would say is that it is likely that most of the money that comes to your campaign is going to come from people who have a real interest and connection to the Cambodian community. Right. It's not likely to come from people who have no knowledge of the Cambodian community. Right. Or the or the history of Cambodia with, you know, with our country. And so many of the people you're going to be going to that it's not likely to be a problem. Right. The problem is thinking that that people who have no connection at all to what you're trying to do are going to give you money just because you're asking for it. So that's probably where we should have started this conversation, I would I would think. So I hope I think that's, that's a, let's 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 drill down on that a little bit more, Andre. I think that's actually a good way to wrap up our conversation today is emphasizing for everybody. That's not just unique to this organization or this campaign. Um, 
people who don't have a connection to your cause or mission or community are not going to be interested or very unlikely to be interested in giving to your organization. So the very first thing that you want to be looking for when you're looking for potential donors or prospective donors or people to help are, do they have a connection? Could they have a connection, right? I mean, if you, you know, you're looking to raise money for an animal shelter, people that don't have any pets, you know, may not be good prospective donors for you, no matter how much money they have. Great example, Amy. <laughs> right? And so, I mean, you know, like everybody knows somebody who has cancer, but until it's touched your family, is it going to be your number one charity? Probably not, right? So really figuring, I mean, I think, I think that that, point is really salient for everybody on the call is that the don't, you know, you're not looking for any philanthropist in the community. You're not looking for wealthy people. You're looking for people who have a connection and interest in your cause. And that's critical for any fundraising endeavor. (sighs) Amy, we've covered a lot of ground today. What are we talking (laughs) about next week? What are we talking about next week? Uh, You know, I think we're talking about being in a campaign mindset, if I recall correctly. And, you know, it's something that we've been thinking more and more about here at the toolkit. And actually, you know, the, uh, the idea for the campaign mindset or using that terminology was put into our head by Derry Derringer. And I saw him on the call. He was participating in the chat. So thank you, Derry. Our hats off to you for that one. Um, But really thinking about approaching all of your fundraising using the best of campaign strategies. So I think that's what we're going to be talking about um, next week. So when we have a couple of things at the toolkit specifically about boards, we've wandered a little from that subject today, but we, we do. How would people get them, Amy? Do you know? Yes, excellent. Well, so we do have an ebook. I'm going to have to go dig it out, but um, uh, for a guide to board members and capital campaigns, you know what, for the time being, why don't you just email us at support at capital campaign toolkit and we'll get that resource to you. We'll point you in the right direction if you're interested in our ebook on on board everything your board members need to know about capital campaigns. But even more importantly, Andrea has come up with the most effective, most amazing solicitation and board trainings. And we offer them at the Capital Campaign Toolkit. So if you want to educate your board members on thinking about what's involved in a capital campaign or you're ready to get started um, or you... um, or you're ready to train your board members and your campaign committee members on solicitation training, then go right ahead and reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about those um, training opportunities. And of course, we're doing them all virtually now. All right, so final thing for the day, uh, uh, going into the chat box, support at Capital Campaign Toolkit. You can ask us for that board guide, support at Capital Campaign Toolkit. Hopefully I spelled it right, but it's in the chat box. Um, And that, just ask us for the board guide for Capital Campaign. (laughs) We're going to put that in again. Did I not spell it right? I don't think so. Wait, where am I? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. So don't copy tool K-I-T. I totally missed. Right. So don't, don't, don't. Pick up what I said. All right, guys, it's been great. We'll put this in. Thanks for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. 